Amen. Turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John, as has been our habit, our custom, to be in the Gospel of John lately. And we've been there for a while now. It's been almost a year that we've been walking through the Gospel of John together on Sunday mornings. And we have reached John chapter number 12. And we will take for our text this morning, verses 20 through 26. We're presented with a paradox this morning that Jesus offers to his disciples and to those who were listening to him on that day. He uses an earthly illustration to drive that paradox home, and I had planned to have a physical illustration up here with me this morning, and I didn't think about it until I got here and realized that I'd left it at home. So you'll have to picture it in your mind. I think most of you will be familiar enough with it. But John chapter number 12 and verse 20 this morning, there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. So we find Jesus in this instance, he's in the temple. And in the Gospel of John, we've kind of fast forwarded a little bit. John hasn't necessarily recorded all the events that have taken place. But if you remember... Last week, we watched as Jesus came triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem. And we watched as the crowd, they sang his praises. They sang, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. The, the king has come. And they were waving palm branches and throwing their, their coats on the ground in front of Jesus as he entered into the city of Jerusalem. And we talked about how in just a few days, the same crowd would turn from singing Jesus' praises to crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And we, we talked about how ultimately what they were desiring, what their focus was on, was that they were looking through the eyes of the flesh. They were looking for physical things, and they had placed an emphasis on physical things. They had, those who should have understood the scriptures, those who should have noticed the prophecy that was being fulfilled right before their eyes, they understood not. They missed the truth that was contained in what Jesus was doing. They missed the foreshadowing. They missed the prophecy that was being fulfilled because they had their eyes on the flesh, on the things of this life. They were looking for an earthly king. They were looking for someone to come in and to run the Romans out of town and to set up the reign and rule of Israel once again. And they were very excited about that and it wouldn't be very long until they'd figure out that that's not what Jesus was going to do, and they would turn on him. 
But in the midst of these events of the last week of Jesus' life here on earth before he goes to the cross, in the midst of all of that, in the midst of Jesus being in the temple, we find a group of people that approach. And they ask to see Jesus. The first thing we'll see this morning is that there's a plea. And there, we'll notice as we think about this plea that is offered that there's a group that originates this plea. We find that in the beginning of our text there in verse number 20, there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. Now the Bible uses that term there, certain Greeks. And it gives me the idea that they must have been known to some of the folks who were reading this. They must have been known at least to John as he's penning this. And we're not given really much information about them. Ultimately, we don't even know if they, their request was granted and they got to see Jesus. But it, these were, it was a specific group of Greeks. Certain Greeks. But we'll notice as we think about them, what it says in the text, there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. So as we think about them, it's not just your average, run-of-the-mill, everyday Greek um, heathen person who's out living his best life, doing what he wants, enjoying all the revelries of life during that time. But we notice that this group of certain Greeks were among those who had come up to worship at the feast. Uh, this is obviously a group of people who are seeking to know God. They are seeking to worship Him. They've forsaken the, the pagan practices that they were uh, raised with, probably. The pagan practices, certainly, of their society. And they have aligned themselves with those who held the Scriptures. They're participating in the Jewish religion. They've come to worship at the feast. They've gathered together. They're, they're those who are seeking God, both outwardly with their actions. And they've come and they, they ask to see Jesus. So we see the originators of this plea, but then notice the recipient. And it's interesting because John goes into great detail here and he, he lays this out for us. This group of certain Greeks come up and in verse number 21, the same came therefore to Philip which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Now, it's kind of interesting. It makes you stop and scratch your head for a moment. Why did they come see Philip? Out of all the, the 12 disciples, now maybe Judas wasn't there at the moment, I don't know, but out of the 12 disciples, they came and they picked Philip. Why Philip? Why did they single him out and ask him Instead of going to one of the other twelve, or instead of going to Jesus. Well, it tells us there that he was of Bethsaida of Galilee. And Bethsaida of Galilee was uh, up kind of on the border of the nation of Israel. And it was right next door to a country, uh, the Syrophoenician woman, we find elsewhere in the, the New Testament, that she was a Greek. And the town of Bethsaida of Galilee is a backwater, podunk little town that's up there really close to the border with Syrophoenicia. So the chances that Philip spoke Greek are pretty high. He would have possibly grown up uh, playing and being around those who were from Syrophoenicia, and it's very likely that he would have picked up Greek. Now, John doesn't give us that uh, explanation specifically. We're kind of deducing that 
But John's very specific to tell us that they came to Philip and where Philip was born. So they, they come and they bring this plea to Philip. And then it's kind of interesting because rather than Philip going to Jesus, you notice what Philip does next, right? He takes this request and he goes to Andrew. And he goes over to Andrew and he says, Andrew, hey, this is what's going on. This group of guys, they came, they want to see Jesus. What do we do? What, what do you think about this? Now, underlying and playing in with all of this is the, the racist uh, tensions that are going on here. Because they're Jewish. The disciples are Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. And the men who are coming, this group of certain Greeks, are, um, well, they're not. They're Gentiles. And so there's a, there's a tension that's going on here. And they've, they've come and desired that they would see Jesus. Now, Andrew, uh, interestingly enough, he was also of Bethsaida of Galilee. So it seems like here's these two guys, maybe they speak Greek, they're kind of conferring with this group and trying to figure out what's going on. But notice not only the originators and the recipients of the plea, but the substance of the plea. They've come and they've made this request, Sir, we would see Jesus. That's a, a good thing to desire, to, to see Jesus. Now, ultimately, we're not given a lot of information. We're not told what their underlying motive is. Now, we can look at some of the events that have been going on recently, and we know that the crowd has worked up about Jesus in the intervening period between Jesus coming in uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, he's in the temple now and likely has just finished uh, overthrowing the money changers' tables for the second time. John doesn't record that for us here in our gospel. We find that in some of the other gospels. The second event where Jesus comes in and he cleans house in the temple. And so maybe they were uh, impressed at Jesus' attitude and his zeal, the zeal of his house. We're not ultimately given the underlying motivation, but they had a good, a good plea. They had a good goal. Sir, we would see Jesus. But notice, then, last of all, as we think about this plea, Jesus' response to it. And this is where things really start to get interesting. Because certainly in Jesus' ministry, there was many times where people came to see Jesus. There were many motivations that people had when they came to see Jesus. There were multiple occasions where people came and they tried to uh, strong-arm Jesus into becoming king then. Uh, ultimately, they wanted physical things, though. You remember after he fed the, the 5,000 with the loaves and the fishes, they rallied around and they're like, oh man, Jesus would make an awesome king. He could produce food out of like nothing for us. Yeah, they wanted him as king because, man, that's really handy. To have a king who can raise people from the dead, a king who can make food, man, that's great. We want you as our king. But notice Jesus' response to this plea. They come, Andrew and Philip, they go and they tell Jesus, and in verse number 23, Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, every other time that Jesus has spoken about the hour, Throughout the Gospels, every single other time, he has said, my time is not yet. 
Mine hour is not yet come. But this time Jesus turns the tables, he flips it upside down, and he says, the hour's come. That the Son of Man should be glorified. But he doesn't stop there. We see the plea. Second of all, we'll see the principle. Verse number 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So as we think about this principle, let's first of all think about the truth of this principle. You'll notice the wording there in verse number 24. He says, verily, verily. Now for us, it's kind of lost on us. It's something that's just, well, it's, it's normal Bible reading. As we read through the Bible, we're like, oh yeah, verily, verily, blah, 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 blah. Because we get used to it and we don't really think about what it means. But this is a very... Uh, Bold statement? Not really bold. I don't think that's the word I'm looking for. It's a statement that's designed to draw attention to this, the statement that's going to follow after. Jesus here is exclaiming. He's saying, hey, pay attention. Truly, truly, verily, verily. So he's really trying to get their attention. He wants everyone within earshot to listen to what he has to say. And then he uses this earthly illustration. He's saying, what I have to say to you is important. It's true. You need to pay attention. You need to listen. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now, it's interesting, given what Jesus has just been speaking about. He's just been talking about, mine hour is come. The time is come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And now he's speaking about a corn of wheat falling into the ground and dying. And multiple times throughout the text of uh, John chapter 12 and even in John chapter 11, Jesus keeps alluding to the fact that he's going to die. And we're very close to the cross. And this is another time where he is prophetically speaking of the fact that he's going to die. But he's using this principle to draw attention. He's, he's wanting to draw their attention to a truth that he desires to communicate to them. So we see the truth of the principle and the prophecy in the principle. But then let's consider the challenge of the principle. It's a pretty simple statement that Jesus makes here. It's kind of interesting that he said, verily, verily, that he wanted to draw so much attention to it. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. Now, I meant to bring a jar of wheat with me this morning. We have quite a bit of wheat at home. We, we mill our own flour out of wheat. And so we have a big stockpile of it. So I was going to bring some wheat for you and set it up here this morning. But I think you're all fairly familiar with what a wheat kernel looks like, a corn of wheat. It's not very big. Um, one corn of wheat doesn't take up much space. Uh, you Hardly even know that it's in your hand if you put it there, other than you might feel it rolling around. It's not very large. But wheat is very interesting. Um, there's all kinds of fun facts about wheat. You know, wheat actually has been found in Pharaoh's tombs back in Egypt, and they're able to take that even still today and sprout it. They're able to place it in the ground, and it still has life contained within that. And that's just mind-boggling to me. How some seed can sit around in a 
a dark environment for thousands of years, and they can pull it out, plunk it in the ground, and boop, it sprouts. But Jesus here, he lays out this principle. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. If you think about one single grain of wheat, one corn of wheat, by itself, it has almost no value. I mean, you could take it and you could grind it up, you could crush it up, and it would be worthless. It would just be as much dust that you'd brush off. You can't do anything with it. You could put it in your mouth and chew on it, but really it would give you no value other than maybe to make your mouth salivate a little bit and make you think, oh man, I really want some food. I'm hungry now. One corn of wheat by itself is, is nothing. It's pathetic. It's paltry. But Jesus says, unless that corn of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it's going to remain. It's going to abide by itself. Right? The, the true potential that is contained inside of a, a grain of wheat is in death. It's in surrender of self. On average, one kernel of wheat, when it is planted, will produce a stalk that has roughly five heads on average. And on those five heads, the average is for each head to contain roughly 22 seeds. So one single corn of wheat can become, on average, 110 corns of wheat. That's some pretty good math. You take, there's roughly 17,000 kernels of wheat in one pound, which is mind-boggling. That's why I really wanted to bring a jar, because the jars we have hold about five pounds of wheat. And it's mind-boggling to think how many kernels of wheat are in that little jar. But if you take one pound of wheat and you plant it on average, it will return 110 pounds of wheat. That's some pretty good exponential growth. You begin to lay that out. Uh, mathematically, you take 110 pounds and you plant that, and I don't even remember what the numbers are on that, but it starts to grow pretty fast. But the true value of it is in death. So why is Jesus talking about this? Why these Greeks come and they say, Sir, we would see Jesus. And Jesus' response is, Well, guys, except the corn and wheat fall into the ground, it abideth it alone. But, verse 24, But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now, why is Jesus pointing to a farming uh, illustration? Why is he dragging them back to school? Maybe they're looking out. Uh, over the walls of the temple there to some fields outside of Jerusalem. I don't know, but why is Jesus bringing this farming illustration in today? What does that have to do with anything? You know, the true value in Jesus, the true value in Jesus' life, his physical life here on earth, was not in coming as a king of Jerusalem was not in setting up an earthly reign and rule and running the Romans out. Yeah. Oh, that would have been valuable for those people of that day, certainly. But ultimately, in the course of, of history, if he had just lived a normal human life and passed off the scene, it would, have, it would not have ultimately been that valuable. Right. The real value in Jesus' earthly life was in the fact that he was going to die. 
Now he, his body was going to be placed in the ground and it was going to bear much fruit. We're beneficiaries of that even today. Now you think of the exponential growth, the exponential yield of fruit that has come from Jesus placing his life within the ground, dying and bearing fruit. It's staggering. And there's a challenge that's contained in this principle for you and for me. The challenge is that the true value of your life this morning, the true value of your life is not in living for yourself here on earth. The true value of your life is not found in holding on to what you have. You think of one kernel of wheat by itself, whatever, worthless. If I lose one, I don't lose sleep about it. I don't cry about it. It doesn't mean much. And it's a little humbling to think about our lives in that way. But the reality is that on the the grand scheme of eternity, if all we do is invest our lives here in the things of this life, in getting what we want and being what we want to be, it's worthless. It's nothing. The real value in your life is found in dying to self and living for Jesus. Consider this. If you choose not to die to yourself, if you choose not to die to your flesh, you will not bring forth any fruit that lasts beyond this life. But if you die, if you allow the small little life that God has given you to drop to the ground, to be planted where God has for you to be and die to self, you will bring forth much fruit. So we see a principle, but then third of all, we'll see a paradox. Jesus goes on in his answer. Verse 25, He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. A paradoxical statement. As he's wrapping up this illustration of wheat, He tells us that if we love our life, we'll lose it. Now, wait a second. I mean, you read the the latest self-help section books. You go out there, you interview people. Oh, you got to live for yourself. You got to follow your heart. You got to look out for number one. You know, if you don't look out for you, no one's going to look out for you. You got to take life by the horns. You know, you got to live it up. You got to enjoy life. But Jesus says, If you love your life, you're going to lose it. And we find that to be true. If we truly stop and consider what happens to people, if you go out there and you live, you live it up. You become a multi-billionaire. You have everything that you could want and you have all the experiences that you could want. One day, you're going to die. And everything that you did, you can't take it with you. All those experiences, all that stuff in light of eternity, begins to mean absolutely nothing. But Jesus said, it's a paradox, right? He said not only that he that loveth his life shall lose it, but he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. The flip side is that if you and I, instead of loving our lives, instead of investing everything in this life, in our flesh, And losing everything, 
If, however, or conversely, we hate our life, that doesn't mean that we need to go around like, man, I hate being alive. That's not what Jesus is talking about. What he's talking about is valuing him, valuing eternity, valuing spiritual things to the place that we look at the things of this life, the physical things, and we say, yeah, it's all, I hate it. I just, I want to be with him. You think about this in the context of a group that has come and they say, we want to see Jesus. The true value in our lives is going to be found with walking with him. Following after him to the place where we say, God, my life here is nothing, but I place it all in your hands. I offer it all as an offering to you because I'm looking towards eternity. I'm looking towards that which lasts forever. I'm looking towards that which goes on, that which has true value. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Those who are willing to give up holding on to their life in this world will reap the bountiful benefits of eternity. Jesus then moves on from the paradox and he gives to us a prescription. Verse 26, if any man serve me, let him follow me where I am. There shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. And in this last verse, Jesus really takes everything that he has said, and he he ties it up neatly. He pulls it down succinctly to us. Here's this group of people who have come. Sir, we would see Jesus. It, It would seem that they want to be followers of his in some way. Jesus makes this statement then in verse 26, If any man serves me, let him follow me. Now, it's a a simple concept, but it's one that we speak about often and I think sometimes gets lost on us. Right? If we're going to be followers of Christ, it necessitates that we follow Him. If I'm walking the opposite direction of where Jesus Christ is walking... I cannot rightly claim that I am following him. If Jesus is going north and I'm going east, west, south, even northeast, northwest, I can't rightly claim that I'm following him. Ultimately, I'm just doing my own thing. If any man will follow me, if any man will, what does he say there in verse 26? Serve me, let him follow me. We are called to be followers of Jesus. We're called to be servants of His. We're called to serve the Master, to do what He wants. We're called to follow after Him, to walk in the way in which He is walking. But He goes on in verse 26, And where I am, there shall also my servant be. Now wait a second. Where is Jesus headed? You see, he had a a whole group of people who were interested in following him. He had a whole group of people who were interested in serving him when they thought, hey, he's headed to be king. He's headed to the throne of Jerusalem. He's headed to run the Romans out of here. Let's follow him. Let's serve him. This is great. We want to be Jesus' disciples. We want to be his followers. But wait a second. He's not doing that. Where's Jesus headed? Oh, he's headed to the cross. 
He says there, if any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. Well, that's a little bit uncomfortable, Jesus. You mean if I'm going to follow you, if I'm going to serve you, that I have to be where you're at? I have to go by way of the cross? I don't, I don't want to go to the cross and die. And ultimately, that's how many people would treat him. Many people were not willing to follow him to the cross. You see, if you would serve Christ, it will necessarily require that you die to yourself. That that corn of wheat drop into the ground and die. There is no world in which you cannot die to yourself and still be a follower of Christ. If you're not dying to self, you are not serving Christ. If any man serve me, let him follow me. Where I am, there shall also my servant be. Notice last of all, though, if any man serve me, him will my father honor. You know, many people, when it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to serving him, they want to follow him, they want to serve him just so long as it lines up with their life goals. They want to lay out their, their five-year, their 25-year plan, and they want to add a little bit of Jesus in there to make everything good. And the, the problem is that even as Christians, sometimes we can get so wrapped up and so consumed in living our lives, in making sure that our careers are what they should be, and paying the bills, and doing what we want to do every day, and pursuing our hobbies, and we can begin to forget what we are to be about. We can begin to forget who we are to be serving. We can begin to forget that the real value in our lives is not what we do here, not what we accomplish here for ourselves. The real value in my life, the real reason that, that Christ has left me here is not so that I can make millions of dollars. It's not so that I can live a great life and go and travel the world and see lots of cool sights and eat lots of great food and meet lots of cool people. The real value in my life, the real reason that God has left me here on this earth is to be a witness and a testimony for Him. And you know what that looks like a lot of times? It looks like dying to me. Because my flesh doesn't want to do that. There's a lot of times my flesh doesn't want to serve Him. My flesh doesn't want to go where He's going. But if I'm looking with the eyes, not of the flesh, but the eyes that are informed by God and by His Word, if I'm looking with spiritual vision, I will recognize that if I want something to become of my life, I'll forsake everything that's here, and I will follow after Him. I will die to myself, and I will live for Him. I will hate my life here so that I can live in eternity. This morning, if you would serve Christ, you must follow Him. But it's not all bad. Oh yeah, there's some dying to self here. But Jesus, He speaks of the reward that comes. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Can you think of anything better? I mean, think of the greatest person, the most rich person here on earth, honoring you. Woo! It lasts for how long? And then it's all gone. But then instead, think of the father in heaven honoring me. 
That's something that's worthwhile. That's something that's impressive. There is no one higher. There is no greater king. There is no one from whom honor could be more uh, glorious or more high and lifted up. There's no one better. There's no one greater. There's no one more powerful. There's no one richer. Honor from him to someone like me? Sign me up. That sounds pretty good. That's better than any return you can get here on earth. That's better than any rate that a bank will give you. That's better than playing the stock markets. Invest your life, not for here, but invest your life for him. If you would see Jesus this morning, it's going to necessitate that you die to yourself. Now, that's necessary when it comes to salvation. It's necessary to die to ourselves, to surrender to Him, to recognize that this isn't going well. This isn't good. I need rescued. But you can't come to Him for salvation and just want to add a little bit of Jesus on top of what you've got going. Hey, Jesus, why don't you come be my co-pilot while I steer the plane, while I fly the plane and do what I want? No. We have to throw ourselves upon his mercy. We have to come with humility, in recognition of our sin problem, in recognition that we can't do it, that we can't make it to heaven without him. But if we would see Jesus as Christians... As those who are his followers, if we would be all that we should be for him, it's going to necessitate death to self. And we have to be oh so careful that we don't let the value system of this life, that we don't let the things of this world, that we don't let the the media around us, that we don't let the voices of others, that we don't let our own flesh rise up within us and begin to teach us and tell us that we ought to live for the things of this life. We have to remind ourselves time and time again, true value in life is not found in living for myself. The true value in life is found in dying to me and living for Jesus. Who's on the throne in your heart this morning? Who are you living your life for? If Jesus was to sit down and to write out This is the purpose of their life. This is what they live for. This is who you live for. Would it be the kind of report card that you want to read? I think for all of us, if we truly examine, if we truly dig down deep and honestly look at ourselves, there is more that we could do for him. There is more ways in which we could die to ourselves and live for him this morning.